You wake up in a cold, desolate room, all alone. There's beeping in the distance and flashing lights of red and white just out of view. Is that someone yelling? Someone snoring? You try to sit up and realize your arms are strapped to the bed. You look around as much as possible for something familiar, something to tell you where you are, but the walls are bare. There's nothing but flashing lights and that beeping. Oh, that beeping. Every beep seems louder, more piercing. Will it ever stop? Your head feels heavy, like there's a fog between you and reality. When is this? Where is this? Fear grips you and you try harder to get out of the soft restraints tying you down. Finally, someone comes in. His voice is soothing, but you're skeptical. He offers a medication with the juice. No way you'll take that poison. You spit it out as soon as it touches your lips. Next comes a needle. You try to resist, but he's too strong. There's a painful jab in your arm. Fear, anxiety, confusion. You try to struggle, but you find yourself drifting. Maybe it's all a nightmare. You wake up in a cold, desolate room, all alone. Up to 50% of patients in the ICU and 30% of patients on the general internal medicine floor will have delirium. This experience can be distressing for patients, families, and healthcare providers alike. Today, our patient has delirium, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, When the Mind Plays Tricks, An Approach to Delirium. Okay, time for a minute physiology. Delirium is an acute change in a person's mental status that fluctuates over time and can be classified as hyperactive, hypoactive, or mixed. Hyperactive delirium may present as psychomotor agitation, restlessness, hallucinations, or delusions, while hypoactive delirium may present as drowsiness, decreased level of consciousness, psychomotor slowing, or apathy. Hypoactive delirium is more commonly missed because these patients are not agitated, but delirium of either type increases mortality, and it is therefore important to recognize. Delirium is most often multifactorial, resulting from a number of insults and or underlying risk factors. Anyone may develop delirium with a large enough stressor, but underlying patient characteristics will determine the magnitude of stressor required to trigger delirium. For example, young, Otherwise healthy patients admitted with traumatic brain injury, requiring emergent surgery, sedation, and psychogenic medications, frequently develop delirium due to the magnitude of the stressor, while an older adult with underlying dementia, psychiatric illness, leading to baseline abnormalities in neurotransmitters, or a structural intracranial abnormality, may develop delirium with a much smaller insult. The pathophysiology of delirium is poorly defined. But just as the causes of delirium are typically multifactorial, so too is the hypothesized pathophysiology. Neurotransmitters, inflammation, physiologic stressors, metabolic derangements, electrolyte disorders, and genetic factors are all felt to contribute to delirium. Furthermore, many causes and predisposing factors directly result in neurotransmitter abnormalities and alterations in cerebral oxidative metabolism. 
So now that we've talked about the types of delirium, let's talk about the approach. Delirium is a clinical diagnosis and as such relies on your astute clinical observation and detective work to determine if behavior in hospital reflects a change from baseline. The most commonly used tool for identifying delirium is a confusion assessment method, or CAM, which has a sensitivity of 94% and a specificity of 89% and high inter-rater reliability. The CAM criteria are as follows. First, the patient must have an acute onset and fluctuating course, as well as inattention. The patient also must have one of disorganized thinking or altered level of consciousness. Other findings may support your assessment, including sleep-wake cycle disturbance, hallucinations, delusions, increased or decreased psychomotor activity, inappropriate behavior, and emotional ability. Sometimes the diagnosis of delirium will be obvious, but sometimes it will not. It is important to obtain collateral history from others inside and outside of the hospital, including family members, caregivers, nursing home staff, in-hospital nursing staff, and other allied health professionals, as these patients are frequently unable to provide a reliable account of the changes they are experiencing. This collateral history, paired with your own observations at multiple time points, will help you make a clinical diagnosis of delirium. Now that you've identified delirium, the next step is to identify the trigger. Delirium may be the sole presentation for a medical emergency in older adults, particularly those with underlying dementia, and therefore should be taken seriously. The workup should be based on the history, including the patient's past medical history and physical exam. There are a number of acronyms for differential diagnosis of delirium. You may have heard of DIMS, DIMES, DIMERS, or delirium. Today, we'll use the delirium acronym to help guide our differential. The D in delirium stands for drugs. Drugs can be too much or too little. Make sure you take a full medication history and pay particular attention to newly started or stopped medications or recent dose changes in existing medications. Don't be afraid to get a pharmacist involved early. Drugs that can be deliriogenic include analgesics, such as opiates, anticholinergics, such as dimenhydrinate or gravel, or diphenhydramine, such as Benadryl, sedatives, such as zopiclone, benzodiazepines, or trazodone, intoxication or withdrawal, and ironically, the medications we use to treat hyperactive delirium, including antipsychotics, can contribute to delirium. Drugs can have a cumulative effect, so while no one medication may have a high anticholinergic burden, a patient may be on a number of medications with a modest burden. Too little drugs refers to either inadequate management of symptoms or withdrawal, especially withdrawal from alcohol or benzodiazepines, and to a lesser extent, nicotine. The BEERS criteria is an excellent resource for more information. The E in delirium is for electricity. This is our reminder not to forget about the possibility of seizures. Typically, this is unlikely for elderly patients with no prior seizure history, but keep it in mind, especially for those with structural brain disease or end-stage dementia, and in those who are recently started on medications that lower the seizure threshold. L is for low oxygen. If your brain isn't getting enough oxygen, it is more prone to delirium. Hypoxic states and ischemic insults can both present as delirium. 
These include heart failure, hypoxemia, hypotension, myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, COPD exacerbations, and stroke. The I is for infection. Common sources of infection include respiratory, urinary, skin, and soft tissue. Rare causes, but a medical emergency, include CNS infections such as meningitis, encephalitis, or brain abscesses. Importantly, older adult patients may not be able to mount a fever in response to infection. Therefore, you should maintain a high level of suspicion and pay attention to subtle clues such as high normal temperatures, suprapubic tenderness, and cough, as patients may not be able to describe their symptoms. R is for retention. This can be urine or stool. This is easily identifiable and easily correctable, but commonly missed. Always do a post-void residual to check for urinary retention and review nursing notes on bowel habits. Many older adults will have constipation and require regular bowel routine medications. I is for intracranial abnormality. This includes structural abnormalities as well as recent strokes or intracranial bleeds, such as intracranial hemorrhage or subdural hemorrhage. The U in delirium is for underhydration or undernutrition. This is particularly important for individuals who have limited mobility and are cognitively impaired, rendering them unable to ask or identify their nutrition needs. Lastly, the M is for metabolic causes. This includes electrolyte disturbances such as hypo or hypernatremia, hypo or hypercalcemia, and other metabolic causes such as hypo or hyperglycemia, hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism, uremia, liver failure, hypercarbia, B12 deficiency, or other significant anemia. Armed with your differential diagnosis for delirium, we'll now move on to the management. The first step to treating delirium is to treat the underlying cause. This is why it's important to keep a broad differential and identify contributing factors. But what if you've identified the underlying causes and are treating them appropriately and your patient is still delirious? What now? The goal in management of delirium is to maintain patient safety and manage symptoms of delirium. There are no medications that decrease severity or duration of delirium, and in fact, commonly used medications such as antipsychotics may prolong delirium duration. For this reason, non-pharmacologic management remains a cornerstone of delirium prevention and management. Studies show that multidisciplinary, multi-pronged approaches to non-pharmacological delirium management significantly reduce the duration and associated healthcare costs. One of the most commonly studied and disseminated of these is the Hospital Elder Life Program, or HELP program. This strategy was initially described in the 1999 landmark trial by Enui et al. Here, we review some of the strategies used by the HELP program. Remember that we are trying to reduce a chasm between patients with delirium and the healthcare setting. So what does chasm stand for? C stands for cognition and perception. Optimize the patient's sensory input. Ensure that there are tools and items for frequent reorientation, such as a board with the date and location, pictures, or other familiar items from home. And consider a sitter or a location by the nursing station for more frequent orientation by house staff. H is for hydration. Always offer fluids with every encounter. Open the patient's meal tray containers during meals and encourage family members to participate in mealtimes. A is for agitation. Try to address the patient's root cause of agitation. For instance, is the patient in physical discomfort? Are they having normal bowel and bladder habits? Are they fatigued? 
What emotions might they be experiencing? Is the environment optimized? Consider the room temperature, surrounding noise, and other types of sensory stimulation that the patient may be experiencing. Is the patient feeling safe in his or her environment? Try to assess and address some of these factors to help with the patient's delirium. Relaxation techniques with music, videos, or books may also help. S stands for sleep-wake cycle. Discourage daytime sleeping. At night, ensure a quiet room with low light and minimize nighttime interruptions. This includes vital signs and blood work if they're not necessary. A room with the window may also help with orientation to time and place, as well as optimizing the patient's sleep-wake cycle. M is for mobility. Try to promote early mobilization at least three times a day or more if possible. Avoid fully catheter restraints or IV lines that might restrict movement. These non-pharmacologic management strategies will help reduce duration of delirium and minimize medication use. However, pharmacologic strategies may still be required. So when do we use medications? The take-home point here is try not to. A short-term trial of medication at the lowest effective dose is indicated when a patient is agitated and not redirectable by a sitter, family, or nursing staff, or when a patient is posing a risk to themselves or others. Antipsychotic medications can also be effective in managing highly distressing hallucinations, again when reorientation fails. Antipsychotics do not help with wandering or care refusal. With respect to drug choices, antipsychotics are preferred over benzodiazepines unless a specific indication exists, for instance, alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal. Overall, there is no difference between typical and atypical antipsychotics, and the choice should be guided by side effect profile. Finally, a note on restraints. Always aim to avoid restraints as part of your chasm interventions. But, like medications, restraints may be required for the safety of the patient or of others. Antipsychotic medications, also known as chemical restraints, are always preferred over physical restraints for violent behavior. There may still be times that physical restraints are necessary, particularly in critical care settings where the risk of removal of tubes or lines outweighs the risk of restraint. In these cases, always reassess frequently, use a sitter or family to reorient the patient, and discontinue restraints as soon as safely possible. There is no evidence that restraints reduce falls, and in fact, they are associated with increased risk of injury. All right, time for a medicine minute. Delirium is often thought of as an acute process. However, studies have demonstrated that patients who develop delirium in hospital can have ongoing cognitive dysfunction for up to 12 months following their hospitalization. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled When the Mind Plays Tricks and Approach Delirium. This episode was written by Dr. Corey Vincent, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Karen De Silva, geriatrician, and Dr. Rupal Shah, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and executively produced by Leia Karianopoulos and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshman Fazantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you have your podcasts. As always, we have our infographic as well as extra resources available at our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Follow us on Twitter and our new Instagram account at The Internet Work. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.